The Mountain Vista Baptist Church podcast features the preaching and teaching of Pastor Robert Perry and the guest speakers of Mountain Vista Baptist. The purpose of this podcast is to help believers grow, to edify the saints, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is everything. Now this, in that series title, is the message of the gospel and the power behind it, the person behind it as well. And of course, uh, the message of the gospel is simply the fact that Jesus Christ came to this earth, He died on the cross, He was buried, but He rose again. For each and every one of us so that we might be able to have salvation. Now, as we began to go through this series, we considered that it was everyone that needs it. Uh, And we say, of course, everybody needs the gospel message. Everyone needs to be saved uh, because I know a lot of people that are, are really, really bad people. I know this world is full of wicked, evil people. I'm thankful I'm not like those wicked, evil people. I'm a moral person. And, uh, and we can say those types of things, right? And we realize, as we looked at the story of the prodigal son, that there was actually two sons in that story. One represented that evil, those evil, wicked people that were sinners and always did the bad things and all of that. But the other one, the older son that stayed home and always took care of the things he was supposed to take care of and did what he was expected to do and loved his father, we saw that he was kind of representing the moral people of this world. And we come to realize that both of those brothers needed the love of the father. And that, that story illustrates that everyone both people who consider themselves to be moral and those who we consider to be evil need the love of Jesus. Every single person needs this gospel message. We, of course, looked at the the theological aspects of it to an extent in the book of Colossians uh, with uh, the Apostle Paul writing there to that church. And then we looked in the book of Isaiah and saw the uh, barren woman and how uh, the Lord said to her that she could sing and rejoice even though uh, the society looked down upon her because our worth is not wrapped up into what society says. Our worth is wrapped up in who Jesus says we are, we, we are and, and that's the power of the gospel. That's what the gospel brings into our life to, uh, to reinstate our priorities as well. But then we took a break uh, at looking at some of the aspects of how the gospel affects us on a daily basis. And last week, we looked at the basis of the gospel. Because as we're, we're developing through this series... Uh, it, it, it was, it's definitely, we all realize that if one is going to live a gospel-centered life, if one is going to live a, go, a, a life that is characterized uh, by the power of the gospel and that transformation that would take place, then one must first understand and also embrace the gospel. And so we went back and looked at the basis of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 last week. And I want to share those verses again with you as a springboard jumping into what we'll talk about today. In 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 through 4, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth these words, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And so Paul summed up the gospel message in a simple statement. Statement, and that is, Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. And we said last week, that's the basis of the gospel. That's why this gospel message has the power to transform lives. It's because it's not based in you and I. It's based in the person of Jesus Christ. But then, of course, uh, we are coming here to Ephesians chapter 1. And I want you to look at verse number 13 with me today. And we'll read verses 13 and 14. 
It says, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of the truth, of truth, I'm sorry, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, unto the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of of His glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You for this morning. We thank You for the opportunity to be in Your house today. And God, I would ask that You just bless our time together in Your Word. Give me the words to speak as I deliver it. Help it to be uh, spoken clearly and concisely, that we might be understood this morning by the hearer. Lord, I ask that you're, You would be honored and glorified as we consider all that You've done for us and uh, the great benefits that the gospel message brings into the life of the one who just has received it and into the one's life who's lived in it as well. And Lord, I ask now that you would be honored, glorified, and praised, that your will would be accomplished. And uh, we do ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this morning before me, I would state that there's probably uh, one of two people. Uh, you fall into two cate- one of two categories of people today. The first category that it would be those who have believed the gospel message unto salvation. Those who have, who have heard the gospel message, those who have heard that Jesus died for them, he was buried and rose again, you've trusted that message, and you've called upon the name of the Lord to be your personal Savior. You're saved today. You have a home awaiting for you in heaven. That's the first group of people that you, either, that you might fall into today. There's another group of people that could be here this morning, though, and that would be the group of people who have not accepted uh, Christ as their Savior. Maybe they've heard the gospel message. Maybe they've never heard the gospel message. But they've never personally accepted Christ as their personal Savior. Now, many who have not received the gospel message, many who have not accepted Christ as their personal Savior, part of the reason maybe why they haven't is because they have questions about this message. They have questions as to how does this affect me and why is the gospel message so important? Maybe they'll ask questions like, why do I need to be saved? Why do I need salvation? Uh, how do I receive salvation might be another question. And, and uh, what do I do to receive it? Then another question might even be, what are the consequences if I reject this gospel message? What if I don't accept Christ as my Savior? And let's be honest, all of these are valid questions, are they not? I mean, for someone who doesn't already know Christ, and maybe they're hearing this for the first time, obviously it would only be logical for people to say, well, I want to have some of these answers, these questions answered, I should say. But listen, my friends, aren't you glad that the Bible gives us the answer to those questions also? The Bible does tell us why we need salvation. The Bible tells us how salvation is received. The Bible even tells us the consequences for those who would reject salvation. So I realize that there's a group that might be here today that has some questions. I also realize that there are some that are here today who have received the gospel message, who have trusted Christ as their personal Savior. They've been saved by His grace, but unfortunately have yet to truly and really grasp the enormity of the gift that God has given them grasp the, the realization of what the gospel message truly entails. And many believers have the attitude that the gospel is reserved solely for those who have yet to believe on Christ unto salvation. Well, I'd submit to you this morning that that is just simply not the case. 
that the gospel is important for everyone, the unsaved and the saved alike. While this passage doesn't completely encompass everything about what the gospel does in the believer's life or into the one who trusts Christ as their Savior's life, I believe it gives us a good beginnings. I believe it gives us a good springboard into some of the benefits of the gospel. And I pray that through the message today, that if you're here and you have some of those questions as, why do I need to be saved? How do I be saved? What's the consequences if I don't trust Christ? I pray that this message will answer those. And if you're here this morning and you might fall into the category of being saved, but you kind of still are even still today, scratching your head and saying, why is the preacher talking all this time about the salvation? Why is he talking so much about the gospel that you'll see some of the benefits that come from living a life that is saturated in the gospel and it will just help encourage us all the, all the more. I want you to notice with me in verse number 13 again of Ephesians 1, and read the first part with me. It says, "...in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation." What is the benefits of, of the gospel message? Well, number one, this morning I want you to notice that the benefit of the gospel is an immediate transformation. An immediate transformation. See, my friends, the first chapter of this book of Ephesians, this letter to the church of Ephesus, is truly a rich discourse in our standing before God in Christ. It, it, Paul uh, talks about how we were adopted and, and uh, how the Lord has saw fit that he would gi give us an opportunity to, be, opportunity to be saved through his grace. And in fact, in the next chapter, uh, chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9, it tells us that for by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so it's given us some practical understandings on, uh, on the basis of the gospel message again, that it is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, my friends, as we consider this immediate transformation in the believer's life, when they accept Christ and they, uh, they believe the gospel message, notice that Paul begins with the process of this transformation. In verse number 13 again, he says these words, "...in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth." He says that you trusted... After that, he heard the word of truth. Can I remind you what he said to the church at Corinth as we studied last week again in 1 Corinthians 15? He said these words, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. He's saying that, that I received this, that you will have accepted this based off of what you received as well. What you're receiving, the truth that you're receiving is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What Paul understood was this, that the gospel message applies to every single person. That the gospel message is not reserved just for the upper echelon of society. That the gospel message is not reserved for those who have a good background. The gospel message is not reserved for just those who, uh, who uh, do good things to good people. Gospel message applies the same way to every single person. You want to know how I know that? Because of how he declares it every time he speaks of it. First Corinthians, he said, let me declare to you what I also received. Here in, first, in Ephesians 1, in whom ye trusted, talking to the church, the believers, after that ye heard the word of truth. 
You know what the Bible tells us in Romans in chapter uh, 8, I believe, no, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 10 and verse number 17? So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, the Bible tells us in the book of Romans in the first part of the first chapter that there's enough evidence in creation itself that testifies that there is a God. But my friends, the truth be told, most people are going to come to know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because they received the message of the gospel. So he begins with the process of this immediate transformation. How does this transformation take place? It takes place first by accepting the message. And the message is the same for everyone. It is the fact that Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. Now, you can accept any message you want in this world, but if you do not accept that message, that Jesus died and was buried and rose again, you will not be saved. That's Bible. That's just the matter of a fact. You say, preacher, that's not very inclusive of you to say that. I am, I am not here to tell you whether or not someone has been saved or whether or not they haven't been saved. I'm here to declare to you what Scripture says of how someone can be saved. The gospel is an inclusive message because it's to whosoever will. Romans 10 and verse number 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anybody who will trust Jesus, anybody who will accept the message, he will save them regardless of their, of their lifestyle or their background. But it is, it is reserved only to those who will receive that message. So Paul is clear to say this, that the transformation that is the benefit of the gospel message only comes from accepting the gospel message. That's where it begins. That's the process of, uh, of this transformation. But notice he speaks of the possession of this transformation as well. And in the rest of this verse, in that first part of verse number 13, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, notice he says this, the gospel of my salvation. Is that what he said? No, read your Bible. Look it on the screen if you would. He said, you've trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. He's talking to the believers in Ephesus. So he goes on to say this, that this transformation that is a result of the gospel and the power of the gospel is not something that only the Apostle Paul was able to experience. You probably know the story of the Apostle Paul. He was a man that went by the name of Saul, and he was a very religious man. He did a lot of uh, study about the Old Testament scriptures and things like that. In fact, as he gives in, in, the, in, the, in one of his letters, kind of his pedigree, he says that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Uh, he, he said he was raised at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the smartest and wisest men and teachers of his day. And he was on the fast track to be who's who of the Pharisees. But one day he's on a, on a road on his way to a city called Damascus. And he meets Jesus Christ there. And it changes his life forever. He quits going by the name Saul. He goes by the name Paul. And, and he's going everywhere. Instead of persecuting Christians, instead of throwing Christians in jail, now he's asking people to become Christians. It's such a drastic transformation that when he first started out after being saved and would go into towns, all of the Christians still ran from him. He needed a faithful 
trustworthy Christian to come alongside of him and say, no, this guy is legit. He's real. He's truly met the Savior. And then he finally was accepted. But that's how drastic this transformation was. He used to go into cities and lock Christians up. And now he's going into the cities and saying, hey, you need to become a Christian. It's completely changed. But what he's telling the church here of Ephesus is this. Listen, this transformation is one of the benefits of the gospel, my friends. But it's part of your salvation, not just mine. It's not just me that gets this transformation. It's not just me that is prone to this great uh, change that is taking place. It's not because I'm, just because I'm an apostle that I get to experience this. This experience, this transformation is available to whoever accepts Christ as their personal Savior. What a benefit that is, my friends. You say, what transformation are you talking about? I'm not a murderer. I'm not persecuting Christians. I'm not throwing them in jail. So what kind of a change would come in my life? I can't necessarily tell you the specifics of outward things that are going to be manifested in your change, but I can tell you what the Bible says inwardly happens. This is what Scripture says. Immediately when you trust Christ as your Savior, immediately... Whereas once we stood before God, in fact, it's perfect. It's right here in the same chapter. If you've got your Bibles open, the Ephesians 1 and verses 13 and 14, it's quite possibly even on the same page. But look at Ephesians chapter 2 and look at verse number 1. And you hath he quickened, that word quickened means made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. So here is the immediate transformation that takes place when someone trusts Christ as their personal Savior. I don't know what, if that means you're going to immediately quit drinking or immediately quit drugs or immediately, immediately quit beating your spouse. I don't know what type of things like that outwardly are going to come out, but I do know inwardly, immediately, this transformation is going to take place. And that is this, that before we know Christ as our Savior, if we were to die... We'd stand before God, God, the almighty, perfect judge. He would look at us and he'd have to declare our sentence as guilty, guilty as a sinner, guilty before him. And as such, the verdict of guilt and the, and the punishment for that, well, the Bible tells us in Romans 6 and verse 23, the wages, the earnings, the wages of sin is death. That's talking about a spiritual death. Romans, uh, Revelation 21 talks, says that death and hell were cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. And so, my friends, listen, the Bible says that whenever we were to die without Jesus, we'd stand before God, the almighty, perfect judge, and he would declare us guilty. As guilty, we would deserve the punishment as the guilty party, the punishment of death in hell for all of eternity. But here's the good news. Because when someone trusts Christ as their personal Savior, listen, when someone believes the message of the gospel, the immediate transformation is this, that when we die and we stand before God, He doesn't see our sinful account. He doesn't see us as wretched. He doesn't see us as wicked because we have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, which he shed when he died on the cross and was buried and rose again. We've been covered by his blood. And now instead of looking at us as we stand before the almighty perfect judge and hearing guilty and depart from me, we hear forgiven, forgiven. And our account, 
our standing changes immediately. It's not something that we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I realize I'm a really, really bad person. And I realize that you died for me. And I realize that you were buried and you rose again. And I'm asking that you forgive me. And so I'm going to try to do all these things throughout my life to earn your forgiveness. It doesn't happen in a process. That forgiveness doesn't come because of steps of, of doing things. Like, that's what religion teaches. Literally, there's religions in this world that teach that if I make myself suffer, somehow I'm going to appease God and He's going to see me as worthy of being forgiven. And so you'll have people that will crawl on their hands and knees through hot coals and, and through, uh, through sharp objects as they go through the city streets or climb up on their hands and knees up flights of stairs and inflicting pain upon themselves, trying to earn the forgiveness of God. But my friends, the forgiveness of God isn't earned. It's given immediately when we trust His finished work. And that's what I'm saying this morning, that Paul says this, this is your salvation. And when you trust Christ, this is yours. And there's an immediate transformation that takes place within. Now, there will be a transformation that will take place outwardly as you continue to live in your life and the Holy you yield to the Spirit and He conforms you, as the Scripture says, to the image of His Son in Romans chapter 8. But listen, listen. Immediately when we call upon the name of the Lord, He makes that transformation from sinner to saint. Are we still a sinner? Absolutely. Here in this fleshly body, we'll still mess up. There will still be sin. There will still be wrong. There will still be problems. But that's not how God sees us any longer. He sees us as forgiven. And that's immediate, an immediate transformation that takes place. Ephesians 1, verses 5 and 6, earlier in the chapter, Paul wrote these words, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Notice the verse number 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. He didn't say that it's because of the praise of the glory of our works that we've been made accepted in the beloved. No, it's praise of the glory of His grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It's freely given. So one, this morning, what's the benefit of the gospel? The benefit of the gospel is, number one, that there is an immediate transformation. Number two, a benefit of the gospel is the fact that there is an infinite trust. Notice verse number 13, the latter part of that verse now. The first part, he said, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. But notice the last half. He says, In whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Amen. See, with this immediate transformation, those who are saved by grace are promised a continual preservation in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This also happens immediately. This also takes place immediately, the instant we receive Christ as our Savior in faith. This And this is accomplished through the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Notice the identification it brings here. It says there in verse number 13, In whom also after that you believe, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Now, you say, yeah, we just kind of just read over that. It doesn't seem to imply a whole, whole lot. But the readers of that day especially would have understood it immediately. It even happens still today in our world. Anytime there was any type of an, an official document 
an, an, an official transaction, especially if it was done for like, from like the king. In those days, the king might have what was considered a signet ring. And whenever the king would make a decree, he would sign it. But not only would he sign it, he would maybe dip that ring in ink and he would stamp it with his signet, with his seal, making it official. See, my friends, in those days, the, uh, the royal seal was used to mark a, do a document declaring a few things. When, it, when they marked a document, an official document, it marked it as belonging to and originating from the one with authority. Don't miss what I just said there. It marked it as belonging to and originating from the one with authority. And so when Paul writes to this church of Ephesus and says, "In whom after you believed, you've been sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, what he's saying is now we have been identified as belonging to and our salvation originating from the one who has the authority to give it. Are you following along with me this morning? I mean, it makes me happy to think about it. And you're sitting there like, what is he talking about? But it, the, the seal said this belonged to the king and this command originated from the king. And when Paul said, you as a Christian, when you believe on the gospel message and trust Christ as, as your Savior, he gives you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit acts as that seal, declaring that you are identified as belonging to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that you're belonging to him and your salvation originated from the King of kings and the Lord of lords as well. In essence, you could say we've been marked with his, as his property. We belong to him. We've got a lot of cattle ranchers around our area here, right? And if you were to go and check out those cattle, more than likely, more than likely, they'll probably be branded. What does that brand mean? It signifies that they belong to that rancher and that if somehow it got out on the roadway, like they do sometimes in Hereford Road and most and all that thing, that they originated from that ranch. You follow me? It's a signal, a, a sign of ownership. The Holy Spirit indwelling you, my friends, is proof that you're God's. It's proof that you belong to Jesus. I, I call that a benefit. And do you understand that belonging to Jesus, that no one can take that away? No one has enough money to buy you from him. No one has enough power to come and seize you from him. You are his. And so we notice in this infinite trust, we, can, we see the identification. But notice the provision as well. While Paul, he did not specifically say as he wrote to these Ephesians that the seal bore a great significance, being familiar with the use of the official seal, they would have immediately known the abiding principles that were associated with it. Consider the words of Warren Wiersbe as he wrote about this chapter. Here's what he wrote. What is the significance of the sealing of the Holy Spirit? For one thing, it speaks of a finished transaction. Even today, when important legal documents are, are processed, they are stamped with the official seal to signify the completion of the transaction. The sealing also implies ownership. 
God has put his seal on us because he has purchased us to be his own, as it says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 through 20. It also means security and protection. See, the Roman seal on the tomb of Jesus carried this meaning, as we read in Matthew 27, verses 62 through 66. So the believer belongs to God and is safe and protected because he is part of a finished transaction. According to John 14, verses 16 and 17, the Holy Spirit abides with the believer forever. It is possible for us to grieve the Spirit and thereby lose the blessings of His ministry, as it says in Ephesians 4.30, but He never leaves us. Another use for the seal is, to, is as a mark of authenticity, just as a signature on a letter attests to the genuineness of the document, so the presence of the Spirit proves that the believer is genuine. Romans 8, 9 says, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. It is not simple, simply our lip profession, our religious activity, or our good works, but the witness of the Spirit that makes our profession authentic. And would you not agree to this morning that we have received much as while we were in, in the fact that we have been sealed by the Spirit? And it's an infinite trust. It will never go away. But let me share with you lastly this morning, verse number 14, as we see an imperishable territory. Verse number 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. As we conclude our study in these verses this morning, uh, as we wrap up our, our study of the benefits of the gospel, as we found in this passage, we find Paul offers a word of, a, of, inter, of eternal significance. Notice here, he speaks of a pledge in verse number 14. Notice the phrase at the first part of it. It says, which is the earnest of our inheritance. That's kind of a unique phrasing, a unique phrase in and of itself. And uh, it's referring to our eternal future with the Lord. But it's an interesting term, no doubt. That word earnest, it speaks of like maybe earnest money, like a down payment, maybe a pledge. Let me think of it this way. This is the one I want you to really consider. Earnest meaning a guarantee, okay? So this does not imply that Christ only secured partial payment as he died on the cross for our sins, but that when he died, he completed the transaction after all, he cried these words, it is finished. I, I got to share this story with you because I think it will help nail this thought down. Uh, we just were able to partner with other organizations in our community uh, at the Mall of Sierra Vista with uh, the Back to School Bash. And ma many of you helped bag up uh, supplies and get ready for that, and we're thankful for that. You came out and helped pass them out. Man, what a blessing that was to uh, not only uh, the church, but also to, to our community as a whole as well. But while I was in Arkansas, uh, one of my main focuses at the church I was at there was that of bus director. And uh, we had uh, seven different routes and, uh, that would pick up uh, families that didn't have transportation or children whose parents couldn't bring them to church. And, and uh, we, we had a good slew of young people that would come on those buses. Uh, regularly, over 150 uh, would ride on those seven routes on a regular basis. And we, would, um, we had a day, we didn't partner with other organizations like we did here, but we had a day that we called uh, Back to School Sunday on our buses. 
being the bus director, I was in charge of securing all of the supplies. Now, for this one here with the back school bash, I'm thankful that some other folks were able to help with that. I tasked that to some of the younger men that were around here, and they got online and went to Amazon and ordered things and picked up some things at the store and all that type of thing. Thankful for their help in organizing that for sure. Uh, but uh, back Back in my day, right? Uh, back in those days, I don't know if, if Walmart still does this or not, but the, Walmart used to do price matching. So if you had an ad that showed that it was a certain, this item was a certain price at this store, take the ad in, they would match that price for that same product in Walmart. So I would take this, the, the summer months before that special day, and I'd be looking through all of the ads, looking for the best prices, looking for uh, you know, the best deals on those things. And I would keep those ads. I would pick a day, and I'd go into Walmart, and I took like two or three buggies with me into the, into the school aisle, and I'd start filling it up with all the things that I needed. And I would then tote those buggies back with me to, or towards the, uh, the checkout, and you would not believe the look on the faces of the cashiers as I was about to walk into their line. They were amazed at all of the stuff I had in my carts. And, then, and every time that I did it, it was interesting also. Every time I went and shopped like this, they would uh, see me come and they'd see all that I had. They'd immediately reach over after I got in line and shut off the light because they said, this is going to be a long one. I don't want anybody else waiting behind this guy. So they'd cut off the lights, nobody else would get in line, and I'd start unloading things. The very first year I ever did this, this promotion on the buses, very first year I ever went and bought these things, I had like two or three carts, and I start telling them, well, here's this product, I have uh, 300 of these notebooks, I have 500 of these uh, boxes of glue sticks, and I have, you know, and, I'm, and they're, like, they're like, sir, I'm going to have to scan them all one by one. It's a long time picking up the supplies. It's going to be a whole lot longer checking them out. But then I was like, okay, we'll get it done. She starts scanning one item, one by one. 300, 400, 500 notebooks, whatever it was. Next products and everything. The only thing is, is I didn't know this because I didn't work at Walmart. And unfortunately, this cashier didn't know this either, that their cash registers have a scan limit per transaction. I got about halfway through my order, and the cash register just froze. Nothing would happen. Would not take another scan. She couldn't even total it out to pay for it and then move on to another. It was completely frozen. So she calls the CSM, their manager over. And if you've ever had to go to Walmart and wait for a manager to come help you at the, re at the register... <laughs> It takes about as long as you waiting in the doctor's office in the waiter, waiting room for you to get your room and for the doctor. Yeah, it's about that long. So finally, the manager comes over, and she's, the manager's looking at all the things and figuring it out, finally realizes what had happened, and unfortunately could not override anything and said, oh, we're going to have to cancel this whole transaction and start all over. So she cancels it. And now she's like, I'm going to give you an okay to go ahead and like bulk item some of these things to help get, through, get this through, and we'll break it up into several transactions. The reason I share that story, though, is because I put all those supplies on the conveyor belt there, right? And they started scanning them, and they began the transaction, but halfway through, it wasn't ever finished, right? Listen to me, my friends. When we accept Christ as our Savior... It's not just the beginning of a transaction. It is the finishing 
of that transaction as well. It doesn't just begin our process to hopefully someday making our journey to finally getting our way into heaven. When we trust Christ as our personal Savior, when we call upon His name as, as Savior, when we accept the message and the power of the gospel, it immediately saves us. And as I put it this way, it's an imperishable territory because it makes heaven our home. And it won't ever go away. It can't perish away. But not only do we see this pledge, and you consider John 14 and verses 1 through 3, what Jesus said to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. We not only see this pledge, but we also see a promise. Because Paul knew the struggles that were associated with trying to live the Christian life in a pagan world. Paul knew that when you d dedicate your life to Christ, that that doesn't mean that trials cease, that there will still be problems. And the church of Ephesus would face adversity as they served the Lord. In fact, we even read about that in the, in, uh, in the letter to the church of Ephesus, about in Romans, or, sorry, Revelation chapter number two as well. But what Paul is encouraging them about is that they had received the down payment through the Spirit with the promise of a, a full redemption of the Lord's purchased possession. He says, the transaction is complete. Heaven is yours, and it's just waiting on you for your arrival. But I'm going to give you my spirit as a down payment, if you may. Earnest money, a guarantee to say, because it's already been completed, while you're still on this life here, it's, all, it's just waiting for your arrival and waiting for you in your destination. It's going to be yours. T Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.12, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. But before we close, I want you to notice the last and final, if you may, um, benefit of the gospel and its power in our life. See, oftentimes when we consider benefits, when we, when we use that phrase, what's the benefits of the gospel in my life? We think about what I get. We think about the fact that Jesus, we get Jesus' love. We think about the fact that we get forgiveness. We think about the fact that we will one day get heaven. We, we think about the fact that we get a spirit and that he will guide us, that we can yield to him. Those are all things that we get because of the transaction, because of the deal that has taken place, right? But oftentimes we forget maybe the most important part. And that is not what we get, but what God gets because of this. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't jump ahead of me thinking, a preacher's saying that we're somebody, and so God gets something by getting us. That's not what I'm saying. Notice how Paul puts it in the last part of verse number 14. He says, unto the praise of His glory. See, my friends, when a person, when they really live a gospel-centered life, the gospel message declares this, that because we're sinners, Christ loved us. He died for us, was buried, and rose again for us. It declares it has nothing to do with me or you and everything to do with Jesus. And so when a person trusts that message and when a person lives that message, it doesn't, they don't bring honor and glory to themselves. Instead, they bring praise to the Lord. 
Have, have you ever heard somebody say this? Maybe I announce, so-and-so just trusted Christ as their Savior, and the church says, praise God. It's not praise the pastor. It's not praise the person who got saved. It's not praise the events or the service or the delivery of the message. It is praise God. And maybe the most important benefit of the gospel is the fact that it always directs praise to God Himself. Is He not worthy of all praise and honor and glory? He is. And the gospel message declares why. Because He has the power to save. He was willing to save. And He came and died and rose again to save. Whether you're here this morning and you've been saved by the, gra by the grace of God through your faith in Him, or maybe you're still here this morning and you've never yet trusted Christ as your personal Savior. I pray that the message about the benefits of the gospel have done one of two things. That maybe it answered your questions about why you needed to be saved. How can I be saved? What happens if I don't get saved? I pray that if you're here this morning and you have been saved, that it's just kind of reignited a flame within your heart of recognition and realization of what Christ really has given you when He saved you. I'm afraid sometimes we just think that salvation is simply kind of like fire insurance. It gets us out of hell and the flames of hell, and that's it. But the gospel message that brings us salvation is so much more. And as we discuss just a brief part of it, the beginnings of it today, and we'll no doubt discuss more in weeks ahead, I pray that it will have ignited your heart to praise Him for all He's done. Could I invite you to stand if you're able with me this morning as we have a time of invitation this morning? And out of respect of others' privacy, if you wouldn't mind, if you just bow your head and close your eyes, uh, I'm going to ask a few simple questions. The first question is going to be this. How many here would say, Pastor, I know for sure I'm saved. I, I know I'm on my way to heaven, that heaven is my home. I've trusted Christ as my personal Savior. And if I die today... I know that I would go to heaven. Could I just rejoice with you and you give that testimony of just by a simple uplifted hand? Slip your hand up and right back down, Pastor. I know I'm saved. I know I'm on my way to heaven. I praise God for that. And I praise the Lord for being in the presence of other believers today. You can put your hands down. Thank you so much. Now, listen. For those who just raised their hand, you've heard some benefits. There's a promise of eternal security. There's a promise of God's protection and His power in our life. We've heard all those things. But my friend, if you're here this morning and you didn't, weren't able to raise your hand, and you're not sure that heaven's your home, why would you give up all that you have to gain because you're a little nervous what others might think of you? Why would you sit there and in pride maybe, and I, 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 I'm sorry, I don't want to impose or, or or assume to believe to know why you want it. But truly, there is much more to gain than there ever would be to lose when you say yes to Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you'd say, Pastor, I don't know for sure that I'm saved. I'm not 100% sure that heaven's my home. I don't know that I've ever trusted Christ as my personal Savior and accepted the gospel message. I'm not going to embarrass you, I promise you that. But would you allow me to pray for you today? 
And if you're here and you say, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm saved, just slip your hand up and write back down. I'll pray for you. Anybody like that? Pastor, I'm not sure that I'm saved. Please pray for me, Pastor. I'm not sure that I'm saved. Please pray for me. Then one last question. How many here would say, Pastor, I do know for sure that I'm saved. Those things, that's settled for sure. But as I, through this, these series of messages, yeah, maybe I started with this idea of why do I need to hear the gospel again? Why do I need to be reminded about the death, burial, and resurrection? Why do I need to remind myself on a regular daily basis to live in the gospel? And yeah, that maybe was my attitude when, I, when this series began. But over the last several weeks, and maybe even today, the Lord's really been speaking to my heart. He's been revealing to me all that the gospel really means, not just for my salvation, but for my everyday walk with Him. And if you're here today and you say, Pastor, pray with me, that I would daily remember the price that Christ paid for me. That I'd daily, I'd live in the gospel, that I'd live a gospel-centered life, willing to tell others and willing to praise God for all that he's done. Can I pray with you? My hand is up. Anybody else like that here this morning? Hands all across the auditorium.